Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. There are abundant stories about bands that should have hit it big and legions of musicians who once perched on the edge of American pop or rock stardom who are now middle-aged people living quietly as insurance agents, bankers, teachers, engineers. And in the story that we're about to hear, Eastern Orthodox priests. Three members of the Tekoa slash Athens, Georgia band Luxury wear cassocks and say mass on some days and play rock and roll shows on others. The remarkable story is told in Parallel Love, the story of a band called Luxury. The documentary feature makes its Atlanta premiere at the Plaza Theater Wednesday, June 19th, in its Sine in Athens on Thursday the 20th. And Matt Hinton is with us. He is the director, writer, producer, editor of Parallel Love and a guitarist for the band Luxury. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. And also with us is Chris Foley. He's Father Christopher of Holy Cross Orthodox Church in High Point, North Carolina. Chris, thank you for being with us. Great to be here. And Father David from St. John of Damascus in Tyler, Texas, also known as Lee Bozeman, singer of the band Luxury. Father David, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. Well, Matt, you joined Luxury as a guitarist some 20 years ago. You were a musician at the time. Were you also a fan? Uh, yeah. Yeah. And it was closer to 20 years ago than a couple of years ago that I joined. But um, in 99, uh, uh, I was in a different band uh, and we would play shows together. And and um, so as a friendly band situation, I was a big fan of Luxury and uh, and at some point, they decided that they could use an extra guitar, particularly for live stuff. And so, and you had you I planned on was a film in the works in your mind? Oh then? no, 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 no. I mean, you know, like how interesting would it be at that point? Well, it could. I mean, it'd be semi. interesting <laughs> They weren't interesting before they became priests. No, not really. Uh, no, they were semi interesting, but you know, it was sort of one thing piled on top of the next. And so it's like, okay, that wreck was interesting, and then. And then eventually when we made this most recent record, Trophies, which is going to be coming out soon, uh, as we started to make that, I thought, well, I'm sure that that's interesting. Like that, this is our first record that we had made with three guys as priests, which is – it'd be one thing if one person was a priest in the band, but three just seemed too interesting to, to ignore. So I had – made a film before and sort of knew how to do it, and so that got me there. Well, Father Chris, you were a student at Tacoa Falls. This is North Georgia Christian College. How did you meet Lee and his brother Jamie? Well, I started in the fall of 1990. Um, Jamie was already a student there, uh, as well as our drummer, future drummer Glenn. Uh, So Lee and I came in the same year uh, as freshmen, and you know, looking for musicians desperately. Uh, since I had been playing bass for a number of years, uh, all the musicians found each other. And so we quickly, uh, you know, started playing together, writing music together, and formed the band. And Lee, you grew up in Toledo, Ohio. Your father was an evangelical pastor. How did you discover punk rock? Well, you know, so I grew up really in a number, number of different places, but we ended up in Toledo briefly. 
I didn't uh, I didn't really get into into punk rock music as you call it uh, really until college after meeting Father Chris. Um, before that, it was more of the standard '80s alternative sort of bands. Um, but Father Chris was able to introduce me to some of the I don't know that the other side of things. So that's that was sort of the the opening to all of that. Yeah, I guess Depeche Mode and the Smiths may have been more of your cup of tea yeah. at that point. Yeah, that was definitely my my uh, genre. Well, once you all did find each other, your first band was called The Shroud. And make a point in the film that it played, you played at skate parks and bookstores, pretty much anywhere that would have you. And some people do describe you as the Smith meets Fugazi meets punk rock. Had you heard anything like that at Tacoa Falls? <laughs> Uh, no, I mean, there was no, I mean, as far as I knew, there was no music uh, at Tacoa Falls College. Um, I mean, there were little bands here and there, but nothing like that. I think that was just the combination of a lot of different forces coming together that were unexpected um, that kind of brought us to where we were and what we sounded like. And you later changed your name to Luxury. Here is Lee talking about that from the film. It was kind of ironic because we were all dirt poor and none of us had any hopes of living luxurious lives. They lived in a trailer park in Takawa. The floors were caving in, no air conditioning. We were all working together, practicing twice a week. I worked with them on construction sites. Chris and I painted houses. We built homes. They work hard. They have a blue collar, punk rock ethic. That was beginning in that clip, then Lee Bozeman, singer for the band Luxury, now Father David in Tyler, Texas. Also with me from the band is Father Chris, Chris Foley, an Orthodox priest and bassist for the band, and Matt Hinton, he's a guitarist for the band and filmmaker for Parallel Love, a documentary about the band. So you change your name to this aspirational uh, sounding luxury and the film follows you getting signed by Tooth and Nail Records. It's a Christian records label after luxury killed it from what we hear at a Cornerstone Festival in 1994. Matt, what was going on in Christian rock at that time? Well, I I don't know exactly. I mean, I wasn't uh, super involved in it, but what I do know is that... um, you know, the early '90s was a time when a lot was changing, and and um, certainly Christian rock, I think, had the reputation and still kind of does of being very middle of the road, not particularly interesting music. And um, I think that Tooth and Nail was a label that was trying to do something that uh, was reflective of what was going on broadly in the culture and doing more sort of um, kind of edgier type of of things and at that point I mean at the point that that the band signed with Tooth and Nail um, which I was I wasn't in the band yet but the the way that it's been communicated to me is that is that Tooth and Nail didn't really see itself as a Christian label at that point they had sort of a foot in both worlds and Luxury was, was one of the first bands to sign to the label so the identity of the label hadn't really Formed yet, so it was not. I don't think it was completely clear to them that they were signing with a Christian label per se, but rather a label that that had, uh, yeah, had a foot in both worlds. But sold records at Christian bookstores. Yeah, eventually. I mean, that was the. I think that the idea was that it was going to be available everywhere. But but the path of re- least resistance for them because they had had a background in that was. Christian bookstores. How about that, Father Chris, Father David, if one of you wants to pick that up, did you know you were signing with a Christian rock label? 
Yeah, I mean, I think we knew that Tooth and Nail was started by, you know, Christian people. But I think what we liked about their philosophy, uh, like Matt said, is that they felt like, well, there's these two markets out there. We'll certainly market in the, the Christian bookstore world, but really wanted to shop it to college radio and get distribution and you know, local record stores. And, you know, so we, we saw it as maybe an opportunity, something that's similar to our own philosophy. Uh, so we knew we were stepping into some kind of Christian world, but not really expecting that it was going to be exclusively that. Well, how would you characterize your philosophy at that point in your life? <laughs> well, I don't know if, you know, we, you know, had some kind of vision or mission statement or anything, but you know, I think the fact that we were Christians, um, but we never really felt like we were there to be a Christian band at all. We were just a band who wanted to get out there and play and make music and, you know, certainly kind of reflects our our worldview, but we didn't see the band as some type of, uh, you know, evangelistic crusade or anything like that. And so it seemed like tooth and nail kind of had a similar philosophy that way. Right. And they, you know, I, I guess the market, I think we learned in the film that Amy Grant was one of the big sellers in the Christian market at that point. And you guys were not Amy Grant, mm -hmm. clearly. And, not at all. And you put out this record, Amazing and Thank You. And they did sell them in Christian bookstores. And note that many of them were later returned to those bookstores. There was a there were some lyrics in some of the songs, and this song in particular, "Bitter Once Again," where there's uh, uncertain sexuality or maybe a whiff of the homoerotic, depending on who you ask. wasn't anything else happening like that at that moment. Things were super masculine. There was discussion about that. You know, are they or aren't they? Oh, people thought they were gay dudes. I mean, everybody thought, oh, Lee, that, that, that Lee guy is gay. That's a clip from the film Parallel Love. Another song, Never Be a Lady Like Me. And, and Lee, in the film, you, you deny that this was a sexual thing and, you know, were a little confused why people would confuse it to be homoerotic. Really? Never crossed your mind? Well, it's just a failure to read the lyrics or to listen to actually what's being said, right? I mean, I of course, I my background were were these, I guess, more androgynous types, the David Bowie, the Mark Bolan, Morrissey types, you know, that kind of play with sexualized language in a kind of a, a middling kind of way. Um, so that naturally, that's what I was going to do because that's what I was informed by, right? But if you actually listen to the lyrics, you know, the, the particular song you mentioned, Bitter Once Again, it it describes, you know, basically looking down a girl's shirt in which nature stands in the way, and you can kind of get the imagery there uh, for a heterosexual male, versus looking down a boy's shirt, which nature will let you down every time. So that's sort of the opposite. So if you pay attention to the lyrics, there's no... Um, there's certainly a kind of a certain amount of eroticism there, but not homoeroticism, eroticism. Um, so I think it's just sort of a failure to really pay attention to the lyric. It's like it's like Bruce Springsteen and, and born in the USA, right? That has I mean, been adopted as a patriotic theme. Yeah, it is an exact opposite of a patriotic um, 
I mean, it kind of it's kind of a patriotic song, but not in the way people think it is. So, but interestingly the, enough, there, the lyrics were not printed for that particular song on the on the record that came out from Tooth and Nail. Yeah, that is interesting. But I mean, Brandon says it was just an oversight. It's a significant oversight, but uh, I I believe him what he says in the film. So somebody says they did warn you not to sign with Tooth and Nail, uh, and in some, many ways, the film is almost a case of stu- case study of maybe not getting the right fit right off. Have you ever thought about the road not taken there? I mean, obviously, I'm I'm not sure how the Eastern Orthodox faith thinks about destiny or anything like that, or you know, uh, God's plan for you. But I'm wondered, especially with what came next for you. Did you ever think about what if we had been a straight up rock band? Yeah. Well, this is this is Father David. I mean, we. You know, my wife and I talk about that from time to time, especially now with the film kind of being in place and and all the band stuff being sort of brought back to our attention. You know, I mean, the other night we were sitting in a screening here in Dallas and I said, imagine if we hadn't gotten a spot on that Saturday at Cornerstone and we hadn't signed a tooth and nail, then what would have happened? Um, you know, of course, looking back, everything makes sense. You know, why everything has happened the way it has and where why we have ended up where we have ended up and so i i don't regret any of that i'm very very pleased with how my life has turned out um and i think that if if we had had more success or different kind of success that the things that we value now would not be in place you know i think that like a lot of people in the music industry our marriages would have been jeopardized our children would be you know miscreants and and probably we wouldn't be able to express ourselves and our faith in the way we do now so i don't i mean for me personally i think father chris and my brother father james probably feel the same way that we don't regret any of this father Um, chris do you want to add anything to that no I, i mean i agree with what father david is saying um you know my my wife and i've talked about that before too is that uh if we would have had more success and I guess the mainstream market, you know, I, I don't, it's what we wanted at the time, but, you know, I don't, I don't know how we would have handled all of that. So I think Tooth and Nail allowed us to have, you know, a certain amount of success, uh, certainly fans around the country and the, the opportunity to tour. Um, but I think, you know, after the, the accident and the subsequent, you know, just the way life happens, getting married, having children, having to support yourselves. You know, we just weren't able to to take it kind of that next step anyway. Well, we're going to take a break and come back to hearing more of that story about the accident that was just referenced. We're talking with the members of the band Luxury, originally a Tacoa, Georgia-based band at the heart of a documentary film called Parallel Love. And Matt Hinton, the filmmaker and guitarist for the band, is with us as our Father Chris and Father Dave, the bass player and singer, respectively, of the band Luxury as Lee Bozeman and Chris Foley. We're going to leave you with some music from that first record on Tooth and Nail. Amazing and Thank You is the name of the record. This song is Kill the Famous. We'll be right back with more of On Second Thought. We invite your comments, questions, and civil complaints at our Facebook group, GPB Radio On Second Thought. We're on Twitter at OST Talk. You can email us at onsecondthought at gpb.org or leave us a message at 404-500-9457. 
If you missed any of today's show or would like to listen on your own time, hit the Programs tab for On Second Thought at gpbnews.org. You can subscribe to the OST podcast so you will never miss a beat. The University of Georgia continues to grapple with a difficult chapter of its history. A number of community and faculty critics say the administration mishandled the discovery of human remains under a school building, remains of people who appear to have been enslaved. After a protest this spring, police blocked a group of demonstrators from entering a campus building to meet with the president. Among the protesters' demands, recognition, redress, and reparations for the university's history with slavery. GPB's Grant Blankenship went to Athens to learn more. It's mid-afternoon a few weeks before the end of spring semester at the University of Georgia and a group of about 200 people, mostly students, are on the march to the administration building. The protesters want UGA to acknowledge publicly and in history classes that enslaved people built much of UGA's picturesque North Campus. This follows anger over how UGA handled the discovery of over 100 graves of enslaved people during the expansion of the building that houses the anthropology department. Most were reinterred, but eight remain buried underneath the foundations of Baldwin Hall. This has been 400 years in the making. Protesters want a living wage for all campus employees. They're also focused on the gulf between who attends the University of Georgia and who lives in the city of Athens. While 8% of the UGA student body is black, Athens at large is closer to 30% African-American, as is the state of Georgia. The protesters want full scholarships for any African-American student from an Athens high school or for any descendant of an enslaved person. The protesters want to schedule a meeting with UGA President Jerry Moorhead. To get the meeting scheduled on the books before fall semester. Moorhead's not in his office. He never speaks with me for this story either. But via email, his public relations office did explain why scholarships explicitly for African-American students are off the table. In the 1990s, UGA began a scholarship program for black students. But not long after, 15 white students sued in federal court, claiming the program violated the Civil Rights Act. UGA settled, and the students got a promise from the university system's Board of Regents that there would never be race-based scholarships at UGA again. Rochelle Berry is a graduate student at UGA and one of the reparation protests' organizers. She says the consent decree shouldn't be an obstacle. There are ways to get at this that other universities who are in these same constraints have been able to do. Berry says instead UGA could focus on the economic challenges that often stand between black students and college. Right, like first-generation college students more likely to be students of color. Low-income students, they don't have to take our language. We're not, we're not administrators, we're not lawyers. But I do think that we, our argument is that they do need to do something. That something was clear to Tim Rennick years ago. Rennick is the senior vice president for student success at Georgia State University. He says when he first arrived at GSU in the 1990s, it looked like the University of Georgia, very white. But that was changing. And the sad reality is, as we were becoming more diverse, we were enrolling more and more of the students. We were less successful in graduating. These were first-generation students, single parents, veterans. Low-income students, students of color. Many of the people Rochelle Berry was just talking about. And Rennick saw the world of traditional universities was not set up to work for them. 
they've still at core been these institutions that were designed on the assumption that people are coming in from privileged backgrounds who kind of know the way the world works and have the supports to guide them. So a little over a decade ago, Rennick and GSU began building their own supports, like the advising system. We have hired across Georgia State University over 100 additional academic advisors over the last seven or eight years so that we would have people on the ground watching students and intervening to support them if they were there to go off path. Then there's the Panther Retention Grant, up to $1,500 that lands in your bank account. No questions asked if you come up short on fees or for class registration. No minimum GPA required. These and other supports have paid off particularly well for African-American students. In the past decade, GSU has doubled African-American enrollment to just over 40 percent. The university graduates more black students every year than any other university in the nation. In short, Georgia State has done a lot of what the protesters are asking for at the University of Georgia, with one big exception. Tim Rennick says the programs at GSU are utterly blind to race. Our philosophy is that all students should be supported, all students should benefit from good advising and good financial aid and proactive interventions when they make a misstep. Based on their needs as individuals. So if Georgia State has created racial equity, Tim Rennick says it's just because he was chasing equity in general. So for the UGA protesters, would GSU-style supports satisfy as reparations? I came back to Rochelle Berry, the UGA grad student and one of the organizers of the UGA protest. So I think it's a yes and answer. Berry says yes because you have to be realistic about what's politically doable in the South. I think that it's politically necessary to say that these are race-neutral programs. But she says they're only race-neutral if race is only about skin, which, of course, it's not. Then we have to understand that, like, these markers for first-generation college student for a certain economic status, for a certain um, experience, actually does correlate to race. Barry says race and racism are skin plus the system we've built around skin. All the things they look for to know when students need help at Georgia State, they flow from that system. She says the steps to change the system are meaningless if we aren't honest about how it was built in the first place. How do we understand the reasons for this. So what Georgia State has done might work at UGA, but not without tackling history. And so, like, I I need the history of slavery to be told alongside the material benefits of, of changing the institution of education that has always supported racial violence. The protesters never did make an appointment to speak face-to-face -face with UGA President Jerry Moorhead. And meanwhile, the debate about how Georgia's university system at large will grapple with its history will continue. Graves, possibly those of enslaved people, were recently found under a grassy quad on the campus of the University of West Georgia. GPB's Grant Blankenship there, who's with us to, from their Macon Bureau to tell us more. Hello, Grant. Hey, good morning. So I want to go back to the, the issue that really came to the fore when the University of Georgia began renovating Baldwin Hall, uncovered remains of more than 100 people who were likely enslaved. So bring us back. I mean, what was it that about the university's initial response to finding the remains that people are still upset about? Well, the initial response was that the, the university said, well, these were likely the remains of white people. This was inform, informed by the uh, the original contract archaeology that was performed at the site. 
Um, once UGA figured out that, in fact, now these were African-American remains, um, then where the remains would be reinterred is what caused people to be very angry. They were buried, uh, the ones that could be recovered from the building, there's still some underneath the building. They were buried in the cemetery behind Baldwin Hall, which historically was a segregated cemetery. And so that caused a lot of um, uh, pain, I think, for a lot of people in Athens and a lot of anger. So that was back in 2015. You're reporting now four years later, the controversy still causing protests. And Rochelle Berry, who we heard from, co-organized the demonstration you covered. Expand, please, on this idea of wanting material and symbolic change. What is she looking for in the way of material demands? Well, the, the material thing is grounded in the idea that there are descendants of people who were never paid for their labor on the campus of UGA who still live in Athens, in the Athens community. So a piece of this I wasn't able to touch on in the story is that there's a labor chunk of this. They want all the people who work on campus in the physical plant, in the dining halls, to get a minimum wage of about $15 an hour. That's about $31,000 a year. Again, the argument is that these are the descendants of people who are likely unpaid for all the work they did to build the university so they could at least get a living wage. Um, for their part, UGA has said that they are raising the minimum wage on campus to a little over $12 an hour. That's about $25,000 a year. Now, the symbolic change piece of it is um, they want students at UGA to be taught just as a matter of their education that slavery helped build the university. I spoke to one student who was watching the protest off to the side that day and asked him what he learned about the history of slavery at UGA. And he said all he really knew was, and these were his words, uh, the civil rights era, 1950s-ish. Um, he'd never learned anything. In fact, all he knew about Baldwin Hall was because of what protesters had taught him. So they want to change to that. They want this stuff to be common knowledge and a part of the history that every UGA student carries around with them while they're at the school. Grant, just 30 seconds left. What does the university say about these demands for material and symbolic changes? Well, as you heard, there's a federal consent decree that rules out race-based scholarships, but they do point out to something they call their commitment scholarship program. It works sort of like the Panther Retention Grant. It's money for kids who are Pell eligible. Those are federal grants for low-income families. Um, but you have to apply for that money. You have to maintain it with a GPA. It's quite unlike the Panther Retention Grant, which just catches kids when they need it. Well, we know the story is going to unfold. GPB's Grant Blankenship, thanks so much for bringing us this tick in the chapter. Yeah, thanks for having me. Later this year, two middle Georgia veterinarians are going to be starring in a reality TV show on National Geographic. It's called The Critter Fixers and follows doctors Bernard Hodges and Terrence Ferguson. They run Critter Fixer Veterinary Hospitals in Byron and Bonaire. But the road to success wasn't exactly a dog walk in the park for Bernard. In 2017, he wrote Bet on Yourself from Zero to Millions. And it's a book detailing his rise from growing up poor in Fort Valley, Georgia, to becoming a veterinarian and millionaire real estate investor. And he's joining us on the line now from Bonaire. Hello. Hey, how are you? Well, I'm so happy to talk with you. <laughs> all right, all right. But I want to hear a little bit about your story first. I, I also know that, you know, most veterinarians are treating cats and dogs most times, but you're in middle Georgia. You're also treating big farm animals. How about exotic pets? Are there a lot of exotic animals that make their way into your practice? For 
sure. We treat quite a few. We uh, treat everything from camels to kangaroos, uh, large... Uh, kangaroos. Kangaroos. There are kangaroos here in Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite amazing, and I'm really looking forward to the show. And your longtime friend and business partner, Terrence Ferguson, you both graduated from Tuskegee School of Veterinary Medicine together. And this is both African-American doctors, open yeah. critter fixer. About 98% of veterinarians are white, as I read. How did you become interested in the field? So we're both country boys. Uh, Terrence grew up in Talbotton, Georgia, and I grew up in Fort Valley, Georgia. So, you know, we always loved animals. I can remember as a kid uh, working with turtles and trying to save frogs and doing different things. So, you know, it was just a childhood dream. I want to be a veterinarian. I, I didn't know. I didn't know that, uh, you know, most veterinarians didn't look like me. I just knew I wanted to be this guy who treats pets. And, uh, you know, I was fortunate enough to, to get, get into Tuskegee University, which, you know, Tuskegee is the only HBCU veterinary school. So if you see a veterinarian and he's, uh, or she is, is, is black, then it is a great chance that it's a 90% chance that they attended Tuskegee. Wow. Wow. That's something. And I I heard that this weekend you went to the first ever National Association of Black Veterinarians Conference. This was in New Orleans. It was in New Orleans. Amazing thing. So, you know, what we're trying to do is increase diversity. Um, A large umbrella is called American Veterinary Medical Association. So the big push has been to kind of increase the diversity of uh, black people in the profession, you know, maybe get that number over 2%, hopefully 5, 10, 15%. Mm -hmm. So a lot of us got together and we were thinking, like, let's just do our own conference. Let's figure out how can we do diversity and kind of talk about it. And it it was a great, great thing because – a lot of times, you know, I can remember my kid, and I, I remember growing up, they always say, you could be the first black president. But, you know, when I looked on the wall and sat down, I didn't see anybody that looked like me. Mm-hmm. So even though people said it, you didn't quite see it. So hopefully with being on the television show, and also Dr. Blue, who who has a veterinary show, he was the first black veterinary show on uh, Animal Planet. He and I were really good friends and both went to Tuskegee. Hopefully with his exposure and them seeing us, these kids will say, it's possible. Yeah, but how did you, you didn't have any models in front of you. There was nobody, no picture up on the wall of a black veterinarian for you, was there? There was not. Um, It's just perseverance, just kind of figuring out a way. You know, you got to figure out a way to achieve those those dreams. And I had some, some, some mentors who told me, all right, God, this is the prerequisites. These are the school, the classes you need to take. And you just got to work hard. Nothing trumps hard work. You know, that's that's how I was fortunate enough to get here. But you just got to work hard and then try to achieve those dreams. Well, in Bet on Yourself, this is the book that you wrote a couple of years Bet ago. Bet on Yourself. You, you talk about your childhood running the streets with drug dealers, failing the ninth grade. How did you turn that around? So so it's crazy. You know, I failed in ninth grade. Uh, I was running the streets. We called it the trap. We run down and we do all the The trap was the, the name trap. of the neighborhood? The trap was... A, the trap was a collection. It was a. It was a actually a back alley where all the kids from the neighborhood. We ride the bus down there. Uh, we take our twenty dollars and try to turn it into a hundred. Hmm. Um, you know, it, it's definitely not something I'm proud of, but it's definitely something I want to let kids. Because you know, if 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 you see this guy who has all the flamboyant things, who does stuff that probably they shouldn't be doing, you want to be like them because you want those nice things and you think that's the only way to do it. So, you know, and then, you know, I didn't realize I was smart. You know, ninth grade, I, when I failed, I was like, ah, you know, that's what most of my friends were doing. You know, we didn't care about school. We All we cared about was running down to the trap. 
So you have to pick yourself up by the bootstrings and forcing them people show them, dude, this is not the only way. You can you could do other things, and you're smart. So you know it took me a while, you know, and 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 that's why I came in with the book Bet on Yourself because after a while I started to say, hey. Dude, I'm going to bet on you. And fortunately, I've been able to win betting on me. Well, the book encourages readers to create multiple streams multiple of, income, streams of income, investing in the stock market. Again, that's a thing that if you don't have a lot of models for it, if you're figuring it out by yourself, how do you do that? You just, I tell you, my, the key for me, honestly, I used to go down to books. I mean, I, books a million, I just sit for, for hours. I'd read, try to figure out. I didn't understand it, but I'd kind of put the terminology together and say, okay. I'll I'll do I'll do this. I'll try to buy my first rental property. So I bought my first rental property. I didn't know what the heck I was doing, but you know, I, I mean, I've I've since turned that. I think I have five apartment buildings and maybe another fifty houses. So it's just you. But but I know it's you know people see me now and they like, Bernard, you've achieved all these things. But that's why I wrote the book because I, I felt like. You know, everybody sees the the accomplice of Bernard Hodges, the Dr. Hodges, which, you know, that guy 20 years ago was just another kid struggling, trying to figure it out. I couldn't go to my mom. I couldn't go to my dad. I couldn't go to my uncle. I couldn't go to anybody that looked like me. So what I learned was the doc, the doctoral degree opened the door. So mm-hmm. it let me go in and sit down at the table. You know, I didn't know what was going on, but I learned one thing. This is one thing I tell people. Sometimes just shut up, sit there. And act like you've been there, and listen and learn, you know. So I go sit down with these bankers, or I go, and I I didn't have a clue what they were talking about, but all I know is I had a seat at the table. So once I got a seat at the table, I knew just to be quiet and act like I've been there. And I start picking up the tricks, and I started listening, and I started putting it all together. And once I did this, you know, now it's my turn to go back to my my village and say, hey, this is what I did. This is how I turn it around. Back That's why to, I came up with bet on myself. Back to your village. That's interesting that you went away to school in Tuskegee in Alabama and came back. Why did you come back to Middle Georgia? Middle Georgia is, is the place. I mean, this is if I was going to make it in the world, I had people who believed in me. They seen the kid who was running the street. They had seen the kid who was lucky enough to get into college, then go on and, 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 and realize that I am pretty smart and go on to veterinary school. So when I came back, it was like, what am I, you know, I have this veterinary degree. How am I going to make people believe in me? So, you know, we came up with the name Critter Fixer, and, you know, and we just made a household name. Hopefully we're going to turn it into a national name uh, here in a few months. Mm-hmm. But it is just getting, because this is my village. I, you know, I, if I can't make it here, I can't, I, I can't make it anywhere. You know, I needed people <laughs> to believe in me. And, uh, you know. I mean, Jay-Z has a song with New York. You know, he's like, you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. Yeah, I haven't I, heard a song like about Bonaire, Georgia. In Georgia. I can make it anywhere now. <laughs> but you went to school to treat animals. That's one thing. But you run two clinics with your partner in middle Georgia. Where did the business background come from? Well, I mean, a lot of times as a veterinarian, you know, veterinarians are known that we are compassionate and we do love animals. And that is the first thing. You gotta love what you do, and I absolutely love it. I mean, I really come in here. You know, I've done. I got up early this morning before we talked, and I did five surgeries. I talked to patients. I, I love this job. I couldn't imagine doing anything else. I love it. But at the same time, you know, I, I have a son. I have things and things I want to accomplish. Things I want to do. So you just start. Like I say, you gotta find those those assets and those those things and people who can sew into you. So you know, I mean. You have the internet now. I didn't have the benefit of, of 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 the internet as well back when I first started. So I just read books. So I read books. I figured out, 
And I learned people would pay you for skills. You know, I've just learned. You know, I have a skill. I have a marketable skill. I'm good at it, and people will pay me for it. So once I started building that base of the veterinary medicine, you know, I was like, okay, let's start another business. And then another thing that people don't really realize, when I, when I became a veterinarian 20, 21 and a half years ago, 22 years, here I am in the deep south, in middle Georgia. You know, I wasn't in Atlanta. I was down here. And the veterinarians who have since become my friends, I, I tease them now. I'm like, man, y'all wouldn't hire me 22 years ago. Not because you were necessarily prejudiced. It's just that you knew your clientele, 90, 99% of the people that walked through the door didn't look like me. Most of them were white. You would have taken a chance to hire me, but, and, and I get it, because 99% of the people that walked through my door at that time were white. But they believe, So I had to start my own business. I couldn't really get a job down here. So, you know, it was a gift and a curse. It was a curse in that I couldn't really get a job here. I could have went to Atlanta. I could have went to the bigger cities. But by having to what we call eat what I kill, I had to figure out how to make money, how to market myself, and how to start my business, 20 years later, it's, it's all worked out. All right, Dr. Hodges, we have just half a minute left, so I'm wondering, advice to a young black student who wants to be a vet? Work hard. Definitely find somebody who who can advise you and teach you the the way, meaning a lot of times, you know, there's a lot more that go go into being a veterinarian and find a mentor. Go find a veterinarian and ask them and beg them, can you clean poop? Can you come in and see the inner workings of that veterinary hospital? Just get in there, work hard. And then that person can write you a letter because you got to have a letter from a veterinarian to even get into vet school. And a lot of times, you know, as, as, as black kids, you're like, well, where am I going to find someone to write a letter? Just beg them to clean poop. Start with that. Just beg them, <laughs> can you clean their floor, floors? Just get a foot in the door. Dr. Bernard Hodges, a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks so much. You're very welcome. Dr. Bernard Hodges operates two Critter Fixer veterinary clinics in middle Georgia. You know, that place where if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. You can check him out on his own reality TV show this fall on National Geographic. I'm Virginia Prescott, back with more of On Second Thought tomorrow. Thanks so much for being with us. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.